Let's get some sports law updates from Professor Michael McCann. This is the Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. So, Mike, we'll be covering two of your more recent Sportico articles, which I'll link in the podcast description at law.unh.edu slash podcast. Let's start off with Randolph Morris, who's in some hot water with the IRS. What's going on with him? Right. So Randolph Morris is a former NBA player, and he played at Kentucky in college. And after his NBA career wound down in around 2010, he was still pretty young, and he was able to get get employment playing basketball in China, where he made a lot of money for a seven, eight year stretch. He made about $13 million. And during that time, he reported taxes to the American government as he's obligated to uh, as a US citizen. But the IRS argues that he didn't pay taxes on his earnings overseas and that he didn't actually report them. And the gist of it is that there was an interview conducted with him by IRS agents who are in the criminal division part of the IRS. And it was weird in terms of what happened. So he's in China and they go to his house in Kentucky and no one's there or no one answers the door. They leave, they talk to the groundskeeper who apparently didn't tell them where he was They go to a restaurant, they call him, and he says, oh, let's do this by FaceTime. So they go back to his house where his wife is, and they have a FaceTime conversation for about an hour and a half based on court records. And apparently the internet keeps cutting in and out. And during the conversation, according to the IRS, now we only know from their side of the story, but that he admitted that he filed his own taxes through H&R Block Online and uh, that he knew that he had an obligation to report, but he thought it would be double taxation and he didn't report it. So he sort of acknowledged that he didn't do what he's obligated to do. So now he faces some pretty serious charges and he's arguing that this interview was really illegal, that he wasn't given his Miranda warnings that since, since when is that the case? The first thing that comes to my mind is Professor Schur, I did a podcast with, you get pulled over by the cops, the first thing you don't do is admit if you did something wrong. And the, the IRS have legal authority. Yeah, I mean, he should have, I mean, obviously hindsight's hindsight, but he should have said, I have no comment until I talk to a lawyer. And also, I'm not talking to you until I'm with my lawyer. I mean, that's really, he shouldn't be talking at all, right? I mean, yeah. this is the I mean, and he's also not young. He's not 17. He's you know 30, whatever. So he should have known. I mean, again, this is easy to do in hindsight, but you never talk right until until you're, you have your lawyer there, especially he knew that he presumably hadn't paid any taxes on this. Yeah. And now it's he, millions he, of dollars. Right, it's not like millions. a couple thousand dollar side gig that, that he happened to do. He's like, no, he's wor- he's literally working in China, making millions of dollars and saying, Eh, I, I, I don't I don't think this is right. And instead of making sure he does the correct filings, I mean this this seems like he's in real hot water here. Now he's gonna argue he was just trying to be cooperative, that he was trying to be responsive and 
and sort of be a good sport about it. But the IRS obviously views it differently, especially when at least their account of the interview, there's no recording. It's really a, a written account that he acknowledged awareness of what he was doing. And that's really a, a mistake, again, in hindsight, where he's where he's saying, well, you know, I, I didn't I thought it was double taxation, but he also said he knew he had a duty to report it. So he kind of gave conflicting answers. But uh, I, I think it struck a lot of people. The story has struck a lot of people about how you can earn money outside the U.S. but still be obligated to pay taxes in the U.S. and certainly have to report it. There are is a very low cap on an offset, and it also depends on state law as well. So it sort of struck people as this is the IRS going after him. Why doesn't the IRS go after other people than a basketball player is just trying to apply his trade in another country? But none of those are really legal defenses. They're just sort of, you know, he's not, maybe he's not the villain that the IRS makes him out to be, but he did, at least based on what the IRS claims, didn't do his his due diligence. And also it sort of invites the question, why is he doing his own taxes? That's the other. Yeah, that's shocking. Part. Yeah. I mean, you're making all this money and this is where it's worth hiring someone who's a tax expert because that person might, if setting aside just complying with the law, that person may know ways of paying less in taxation. So without uh, just claiming, I think I'm being double taxed, so I'm just not going to file. Yeah, that's the, uh, I mean, he, he he filed without reporting the income. So he can't even say he didn't know he had to report. I mean, he actually reported. He just didn't report that particular source of income. So it's, he's in a lot of trouble. Now, I suspect this gets resolved in a plea deal. I don't think that, you know, there's a desire to put him to prison for many years. It wasn't, uh, you know, he's not, what he did allegedly, I don't think it's going to lead to a trial. I could be wrong, though. I mean, we'll we'll see. And the judge said essentially, like the, the possible max sentence, like eighty years for this, is, is what was in your article. But the judge said that's kind of unlikely. Yeah, that's not. I mean, he's he's a first. He would be a first time offender. He doesn't have any other criminal history. Those are sort of playing out the maximums and having them run consecutively rather than concurrently because he faces a bunch of charges. So yeah, that he would not get 80 years or anything close to that, but he could get several years. I mean, that in and of itself is, is really frightening. I'm sure. Career is done. Career would be done and he'd be in prison. I mean, just so, so it's a pretty nightmarish situation that I'm sure his lawyer will try to resolve. And he also argued, and, and you know, there's a part of me that sort of is empath is sympathetic because he said, well, it was around midnight in China when he did this that he had jet lag and, but, you know, those aren't, again, those aren't really legal defenses. Those are sort of circumstances that sort of reiterate that he shouldn't have conducted the interview. He should have said, I'm happy to direct you to my attorney. And if he didn't have one to say, I'm going to hire an attorney and I'll have that person reach out to you. And the, the IRS, I'd imagine, also doesn't want to go too soft on this because more and more American athletes are expanding Asian, into the Asian market, the NBA and such. The entire leagues are expanding into the Asian market as China wants to start taking advantage of the money from these uh, major corporations and these teams. I, I mean, they don't want to just go too soft on him regardless of what the courts are ultimately going to decide. Right, because this is now... A, a high pro it may not be super high profile but this is certainly getting a lot more attention than a normal tax case and as you noted aj a lot of athletes are earning 
outside of the United States, because especially in basketball, where there are a ton of good basketball leagues across the globe that pay good salaries. And for NBA players that are maybe on the fringe or that are just not getting a job, they have all sorts of opportunities. They can continue their career for many years. And that's only going to expand in the years ahead. So the IRS, as you noted, doesn't want to say, well, this, you, you know, we'll look the other way. This was what, 13 million bucks uh, overall. Yeah, that's quite the threshold to just go soft on. Yeah, so I, I think we'll we'll see something, and um, especially because this this attempt didn't didn't work for his, he and his lawyers. Anything else on that? No, I think that's good. All right, so moving on, it looks like the Seattle Mariners stadium overhaul has had some accessibility issues, leading to court cases. What's going on there? So yeah, yeah, this case AJ involves a group of fans of the Seattle Mariners who bought tickets to go to T-Mobile Park out in Seattle to watch Mariners games, but they believe that there is discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act as to the accommodations for they and others who are in wheelchairs. And they initiated a lawsuit a few years ago against the Mariners and others, and it failed. The district court rejected the arguments. The arguments had a number of things in them, including that, including that Ticket prices were too high for those in wheelchairs, and, and there were other sort of arguments raised. A lot of those arguments didn't, none of those arguments worked at the trial court level. Then there was an appeal, and none of those particular arguments worked there either. The one difference is sight lines. So the appellate court, the Ninth Circuit, held that it's not clear whether the ballpark is complying with the Americans with Disabilities Act in terms of sight lines and specifically for fans in wheelchairs being able to look down over those who are in front of them and the test is whether those fans are standing but as as you look at in, in the case there are a lot of issues this, is this is sort of an unsettled area of law where there are conflicting rulings in part because it's not clear how tall are the people in front of you and also someone in a wheelchair will be of a different height than someone else in a wheelchair. So there are a lot of dynamics that go into it that have been part of the litigation. But the team argues that it has fully complied with the ADA and they have their own experts who say that if you if you look at the measurements, whereas the plaintiffs have their own experts who say, no, uh, it's actually off. So it's particularly in the second row. So if you're standing um, up in front of someone uh, it's not just the person immediately behind you, it's the person two rows behind you under the ADA where it comes up. So there's uncertainty about whether there's compliance uh, in terms of looking down. I think this case is interesting also because if the Mariners are found to be in violation of the ADA, the question will become, how do they fix this? And uh, as part of the story, I talked to someone who's an expert in ballpark configurations who said, who looked at the ballpark and said, based on where these seats are, they would really have to gut out the the area and redo it. So it could be a, a pretty substantial change, but you know, under the ADA, you can't, you can't be violating it either. So it's an interesting set of issues that, that what's also interesting is how unresolved, just looking at the case law, you're getting conflicting opinions. Yeah, about. there's a lot, it seems like a lot of the ADA compliance um, st- um, 
authorities come down to cases where judges are having to look at specific instances because there's so many things that are involved or is just called an ADA compliance issue that you don't even know for sure whether it is an ADA compliance issue. Yeah, right. And a lot of it is so fact intensive that that's what makes it hard to rely on precedent, right? Because you know, in law, we use precedent as a way of clarifying things, as a way of creating predictability. But as you noted, AJ, these are cases where small f- changes in facts can actually have pretty substantial impacts on, on those who are affected by the circumstances. So here, there are fans who are in handicapped seating, who are in wheelchairs, and they have argued they cannot see down, especially with the second row where it's not adequate in terms of looking over and through. And it, it's, it's one of these that, that are it's sort of hard to visualize because it, the small change in the ballpark configuration can have a pretty big change on, on visibility. So this case is about sight lines. Yeah, and this, taking the opposite side that I'd imagine a lot of um, theaters and stadiums might take is you get that one bad seat in the the any arena where there's a post right in the middle of the stage in the middle of your of your view if you're not disabled that wouldn't necessarily be considered an ADA compliance issue I'd imagine so you probably have to meet somewhere in the middle between the two extremes right and and, and Fenway Park you can sit behind a pole I mean I've I've been in that seat so the uh, every ballpark and stadium has bad seats essentially now here the plaintiffs are going to say that's true but they paid for a seat in a section that didn't have an obstruction that you know didn't didn't have those types of issues that it's it that it's they're literally being treated differently because they are in wheelchairs as opposed to those that are not so that's there that's going to be the counter argument there is that it's true that there are and i remember the old boston garden there were some really bad seats there too i mean i think i've seen all of the seats and and i I'm old enough that I remember the Foxborough Stadium, um, the Sullivan Stadium, excuse me, where the Patriots would play years ago. It was sort of bleacher seats, and it, it, it's interesting how how you can pay a lot of money and get a really bad view. And I know that 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 happens in concerts as well. So yeah, I mean the issue of seat sight lines goes beyond this type of case. It, uh, and I think there are some consumer protection laws that ought to be considered if you especially if you're from out of town and you don't know that you could sit behind a pole, uh, it seems unfair that you show up and, and you're sitting behind a pole. Yeah, much bigger than necessarily an ADA issue. It's right. yeah, the consumer protection for sure. And I imagine the stadiums, this would be – across the board, these stadiums are mainly made of steel and concrete. So to turn around and say, hey, we need to raise these few seats – six to 12 inches in turn you're they got to get ramps to get up there they need to get rid of seats so they're losing money on seats they're losing money on tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of renovations i'd imagine there's a uh a certain threshold where the stadiums will go yeah we're not in compliance but it's not worth worth even offering those seats anymore right so that goes to the reasonableness of the accommodation so if it gets to that stage in the litigation where the mariners are are found that they are in violation, they would likely argue that the remedy is not is not reasonable, which would be gutting out and, and doing substantial construction, uh, particularly when it's only two sections of seating that that have this issue. They probably would. I'm guessing they would they would consider other 
areas of the ballpark that maybe wouldn't mandate that type of construction. But they would argue that it's not a reasonable remedy to to sort of t- undertake these large changes to the ballpark. And uh, they're not at that stage yet in litigation, but I imagine that that would definitely come up. I mean, how long do you expect this case to take to really get through? And we talking a couple of years. Yeah, we're talking years. I mean, this case has been going on three years already, and now it's going back to the district court. So we're we're looking at some time. And but it but it's interesting from what I know about the ballpark in terms of talking to uh, an engineer about this issue that it really it's not one that settles it doesn't there isn't a settlement that the team would likely go along with because they don't want to undertake the construction presumably um if they did they you know if they, if they did they presumably were, would have already done it right to address yeah it would have meant just to get to get rid of the issue sweeping under yeah. the rugs okay we, we moved to see no they don't want to be sued um and look like they're discriminating mm. uh, against anyone that um, pr yeah, absolutely. So, and, and so you would think if they, if there was a, a an easy way to resolve this, that would happen. But I don't think that's the case. So this could last a while. All right, Mike. We got a couple minutes left here. Talk a little bit about what the uh, Sports and Entertainment Law Institute's all about. Well, our Sports and Entertainment Law Institute involves a lot of amazing students who are interested in pursuing as potential careers sports and entertainment law, which is a very broad area of law. In sports, it could include uh, working as a lawyer for a team, though that type of job's not accessible at a law school. You got you to work for a while before you get to that stage. But we've seen a number of students get positions with college programs where a lot of colleges are hiring attorneys because of the many legal issues that the NCAA and its members face. So that you were seeing in compliance roles, attorneys, and we have a bunch who are doing outstanding work in that space. And I would say with entertainment, it's a little bit more intellectual property than compliance or labor antitrust. And it's a great opportunity for students to learn about different applications of IP, which of course fits into the school's overall IP program. And we host events, we have a a deep curriculum, we have a student group that's extremely active and um, my hope is that it will just continue to grow. And uh, obviously, our school, our, our, we're, we're doing great. I mean, you know, every, every metric, we have great leadership, and it's got to keep it up. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mike. And thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.